In the early days, scalability was sort of barely on our minds. The goalpost was how do we make it scalable enough for the next 30 days? This is sort of how we looked at things. And, you know, and even things like the, the architecture of the product or tests or maintainability, we definitely had accepted that, that we were willing to push some of that out as future technical debt in the interest of just shipping the product a little bit faster. I'm George Deglin, co-founder and CEO of OneSignal. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how George Deglin slugged through pivot after pivot to build a company sending billions of push notifications a day. All this and more on Code Story. Growing up in the Bay Area, George Deglin has always been in the middle of the Silicon Valley action. Having both parents being engineers, he was influenced to study computer science at Berkeley. During that time, he co-founded a startup in the education space. And after building this company up, he parted ways to start his next venture. This next venture led to the discovery of the vision for OneSignal, the most widely used push notification and marketing platform, sending over 5 billion messages a day. The company's had a very interesting history and it's actually been around for quite a while in a few different uh, different versions, I guess. After I had left my first startup and uh, I was looking to do something new, I met my co-founder that had previously started a company himself uh, in the consumer space. And we, we hit it off uh, really well. We were both looking to start something new. And the initial product idea that we had was building a social network that would let people share their identities across different websites, different apps and different games that they use. So you can think of it similar to like Facebook login, but linked to sort of a virtual persona and a virtual avatar rather than sort of your real persona, like something like Facebook or LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, I think it's a a very interesting idea. We were both very excited about it. We applied to Y Combinator and, and we were accepted in 2011. And after working on that idea for quite a while and trying to trying to find people that would partner with us to adopt our technology, decided that it was just going to be too difficult to, to get it off the ground. And we went through a long series of pivots. It's funny actually to see some of the companies starting now that are building on some of the ideas that we had back in the day. So I had thought of things uh, like maybe there's a way to do like fuel delivery to cars. Um, and of course, there's a couple startups doing that now. Maybe there's a way to build a better email client. And of course, you have like superhuman now. I actually think like um, we were not really prepared to do a good job with any of those ideas, but we definitely did some research into them. Ultimately, what we ended up working on for a couple of years was building a mobile game studio. And I would say we were very, very good at that. We built a really excellent team. I found myself really enjoying the technical craft of building games. My co-founder is an incredibly talented illustrator had some game design experience. So the games that we built were, were very successful in terms of the amount of traction that they were able to get. But one of the challenges that we found ourselves facing was how to get users to re-engage with our games after initially playing them for, for a shorter period of time. And a really straightforward way to do that um, as a mobile uh, developer is to use uh, notifications as a re-engagement channel. And we were astounded at how difficult it was to do that in an effective way. 
the technology to do it and the best practices were were practically non-existent. And ultimately that's that's actually what gave us the vision to build one signal. For people that don't know what OneSignal is, can you tell me a little bit about the company and about what you guys do now? The vision of the business is to help organizations and companies of all sizes send more effective messages to their users. The form that that takes is uh, when you get notifications from different apps you install on your mobile device, or if you subscribe to web push from different websites that you visit. We provide the technology, analytics, A-B testing, localization, all of these different sort of marketing analytics tools and APIs for these businesses to improve the personalization, the segmentation, and just the general effectiveness of the messages that they're sending. We're very, very successful in the push messaging space. So right now, about 15% of all new mobile apps use OneSignal for push notifications. We also power notifications for about 5% of the top websites in the world. There's a good chance that you have several apps or you visit several websites that use us for notifications. We've also broadened our business now to focus not just on push notifications, but also to support uh, email as a channel. Um, And we're continuing to improve that. We support things like interstitial in-app messaging for things like in-app coupons and, and things like that. And we're also looking at other channels like SMS and, and others that our customers are, are asking us for. So tell me about the MVP. When you started out, tell me about how long it took to build and what tools you used to build the initial product. Our goal from the very beginning of it was to try to get an MVP out as soon as possible. We were actually like pretty low on money. We had some confidence that it was a good idea, but we weren't 100% certain until we could actually get it out there and see people using it. There was definitely a rush to get something out there. We were okay with being embarrassed with the quality of it, um, so long as it gave us an opportunity to start getting user feedback and start identifying what, what customers wanted. That said, the, the technology that we had to build, it seemed you know almost overwhelming. We had to build SDKs that people would put in their mobile application. And it wasn't just like an iOS and Android SDK. We had to build SDKs for platforms like Unity. And at the time, uh, Marmalade was popular and people were using Titanium. Of course, today you have things like React Native and Ionic and and tools like that. Um, So we had to build SDKs for that. We had to build, you know, a dashboard, an API, a user login system. We had to build all that sort of analytics capabilities. So there was just actually a, a lot that we had to do even to get a very basic MVP out. And we put together a list. It was myself and one engineer on our team that were working on this. And we just said, okay, we've got to do these 12 things in order to have something that is usable at all. So let's just get through them as quickly as possible, get the product out there and see if it's successful or not. And fortunately, it really was. The product in its early stages was definitely something that we were really embarrassed by. Uh, I'm a terrible like front-end designer. I can code like CSS or I could at the time, but my design skills are non-existent. So I had bought like a $49 template. <laughs> it was not it was not beautiful. It was definitely like it was functional, barely functional. A lot of things had sort of been cobbled together with different sort of open source solutions that we had found. But uh, it was enough, uh, frankly, the products did the core things that it needed to do and very quickly gave us an opportunity to get a few early users and to start getting feedback from them and, and continue to improve the product. We weren't sure if we'd be able to pull it off. We knew that there would be so much we'd have to learn and so much to build. But then I think the discovery we came to is when you have a really small team and a very focused set of goals, it's incredible how fast you can move. There really was no question about should we do this or should we do that? We we knew exactly what we had to do at every given moment. The communication was extremely like 
streamlined. We, you know, were willing to take shortcuts just to get something out the door and, and it paid off. Listeners, do you deal with digestion issues? Have trouble losing weight or feeling low on energy or have trouble focusing? It could have something to do with your gut. According to the latest research, your gut microbiome health is crucial to your overall health. I highly recommend checking out Thrive, the number one rated gut microbiome testing company. Thrive makes the process easy. They send you a test kit to your home, you mail back a sample of your stool in a prepaid box, and in two to three weeks, receive a comprehensive gut health report with dietary recommendations and the option to receive personalized probiotics. Check them out at www.thriveinside.com and use the coupon code CODE for an exclusive offer of 15% off your first purchase. That's T H R Y V E inside.com. What sort of decisions and trade offs did you have to make in the short term when you're working on the MVP? You mentioned one, you know, going with a theme versus designing, uh, you know, from scratch front end. But tell me a little bit more about those kind of early decisions and how you and the team coped with them. You know, I think companies at a certain point have to be very careful about how they build stuff. You know, it's things like having really good tests. It's things like thinking about their database schema very carefully, thinking about the design of their APIs very carefully, doing user research to figure out if a tool is going to, if a feature is going to improve the product or not. For us, we didn't have the luxury of, of really doing a lot of that. So when it came, you know, for instance, to our database schema, there was no real discussion between uh, myself and Josh, our, or the other engineer I was working with, about like, you know, should we have four tables or five, or should this column be named like this or that? We would just do it. We're both experienced enough to know that these sorts of decisions were resulting in like massive technical debt. But that was something that we were willing to accept in the interest of just getting like things moving faster. Like I knew like, okay, I can either just go for it and like choose these database tables or we can have like a, you know, a half hour discussion on it. But then, you know, we'll both sort of lose half an hour. Whereas why don't we sort of just invest that time into, and just plow forward. I think it, it helped that both of us had a lot of experience. So generally the decisions we made were the right ones. There wasn't too much we were doing wrong. But also we, we accepted the technical debt we were adding. It's kind of interesting today, um, now the team is bigger, some of that code is still there and I'm watching the team sort of pull out some of that technical debt and refactor things or be frustrated by it. I feel a little bit bad about it, but at the same time, I don't think the business would be where it's at um, without it ever taking that approach. That's right. <laughs> Do you ever walk, walk up behind someone and point at the code editor and say, you're welcome? <laughs> uh, no, I try. Yeah, I try not to take credit for for all the things that are that are a little bit weird. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of funny to sort of see people wrestle with it. Or sometimes people will come and they'll ask me a question like, "Why did you design it this way? Like, you want it to be this way?" And I'm like, "No, no, no. My intent was not that this was going to be the ideal architecture. Like, please, you should just go for it and rip that out um, if you've got something better." <laughs> that's that's awesome. So how has the product progressed? How has it matured since that point? Kind of walk me through some of the stages of that maturation process. You know, we had this super cheap template that I had used initially. There had been a couple sort of intermediate revisions or sort of improvements on the template. But now like that's totally gone. We have an incredible design team and really good front engineers that have built a whole new design system for us that's, you know, very consistent across all the pages. 
has really sort of good inline documentation for folks. It's undergone like um, some like user studies and interviews to identify like where there were opportunities to make things clearer or faster. A lot of the code initially was sort of a mishmash of jQuery and CoffeeScript, and that's all gone at this point. And we uh, we use uh, TypeScript now and React. So there's been huge changes there. Early on, the notification delivery system we used was basically a fork of an open source library. There weren't a lot of ones out there, so um, we had sort of looked at a few and picked the best one. But uh, after the first year, it very clearly wasn't scaling. It was written in Ruby and uh, could only run on one thread and was sort of like, after it was using like 100% CPU, you just couldn't get any more performance out of it. And so we actually re-architected it using Rust. And now we have uh, an incredibly efficient Rust notification delivery system. The early one, I think, was sort of starting to hit its limit at around like five or six million notification deliveries per day. And now today we send over five billion notifications per day from our uh, from our Rust backend. That is a massive amount of notifications. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. So how do you build your roadmap? How do you figure out, maybe early days a little bit, but even to now, how do you go about the process to figure out what's most important to build next? You know, I think different companies um, struggle with this in different ways. The, the challenge that we run into is that there is practically an unlimited number of things that we could build and that are going to be useful to some subset of our clients. So we have to think very critically about how do the product decisions we make today align with the vision of the company? The vision being that we want to we help all businesses more intelligently send messages. So we think about like what can we do in the next quarter um, or in the next sprint that's going to help us make progress towards that. And you know, tactically, what, what that means is, is uh, we like to get the team very involved. So we actually get ideas from everyone on the team all the way across from sales to operations to engineering. Everyone contributes ideas, and then uh, we get together across the leadership team, um, and we think very critically about what are the ideas that are going to have the biggest impact on the business across things like our strategic vision, across revenue, across system stability and performance, and uh, you know we, we whittle it down to the things that we feel we can accomplish. Uh, we work very closely with the different uh, tech leads and individuals on the team to understand how the different things we're thinking about building fit into what's achievable, what's aligned to unlock future product goals. And then uh, uh, we present it to the team and work on it as, as fast as we can. This is one of my favorite questions. So how did you build your team? How did you go out and find the winning horses to add to the one signal roster? I've always been really passionate about recruiting. And I think some of that comes from, you know, my past startup where I was a CTO and it was just critical for me to, to hire engineers and spend a lot of time trying to learn from other technology leaders about what that meant, um, what sort of qualities I should be looking for. And then when we were hiring at OneSignal, you know, initially it was, it was kind of a very similar muscle I had to use because the initial team members needed to be people that were going to be on the engineering and product side. So I looked for the same things that I felt had made me successful in my career and had made uh, different hires successful at my last company. It's things like, um, you know, sort of being very hardworking, being gritty and, and able to sort of uh, be comfortable with sort of change, 
being a generalist, I think was very important for our first few hires because there wasn't like, you could just have one person working on one thing. There were just too many things to work on. And we needed people that could work on like four or five at least. And then I think people that, that really aligned with the values that I personally had and the vision of the company, that was a really key part of making the right hires initially. And also I think where I've made mistakes with hiring people before is if you hire someone that fundamentally disagrees with the direction that the company's going or fundamentally disagrees with some of the values that I have or the company has, it's very, very hard to sort of steer that person in the right direction or to sort of coach them on doing the right day-to-day work. Ideally, you want someone who like is just on board with the way that things are going and is going to be able to help them go faster rather than trying to take them in a different direction. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's a bad person. Sometimes people just have a different vision for how their role should look or how the business should operate. You know, that they're just not a good fit for this company. They, they could be a great fit for another one. I would say the other part of recruiting kind of at the early stages is just something that you have to invest a lot of time into. You can't really overestimate how much time is required to make sure you're bringing on, on really good people. What are the one or two qualities you looked for in the early days of people that Mm -hmm. you brought on? Yeah, so one or two. I think one was, are they a good fit for a startup? There's there's obviously different things that that could sort of play into that that measure, but ultimately that was sort of the the final signal that would give me confidence about about whether that person was going to be a good fit. And the other one is, uh, are they going to be able to just like come in and have a very, very quick impact on the business where obviously we had very few financial resources, um, very little time to sort of prove the success of the product. So we had to just have incredible confidence that anyone that we hired would be really successful and really impactful from day one. Let's touch on scalability a little bit. So in the early days, you know, you you have trade-offs on, you know, how scalable do we make this to how fast can we get it out of the door? How have you transitioned into focusing on architecting the product towards scalability throughout the time since its inception? In the early days, scalability was sort of barely on our minds. The goalpost was how do we make it scalable enough for the next 30 days? This is sort of how we looked at things. And, you know, and even things like the, the architecture of the product or uh, tests or maintainability. Um, we definitely had accepted that, that we were willing to push some of that out uh, as future technical debt um, in the interest of just shipping the product a little bit faster. Now, as the team has grown, as we have you know many paying customers, uh, things like that, we're now much more conservative, right? So before we build a big feature, we get user input on it. We do user studies with mockups. When we architect new systems, it's no longer something where someone can just like come up with an idea and do it. It's something where we want the whole, uh, all the members involved in building the system or integrating with that system or maintaining it to understand how it's coming together and to have input into whether we're making sort of the right technical decisions. So we still seek to move fairly quickly with things. So, you know, we're definitely not kind of a like an operate by committee company, but we do want to make sure we're sort of getting input from all the smart people on our team about the decisions that we're making, making sure that we sort of have general buy-in and understanding around them. And at this point, like it's okay for us to move for you know for individuals to move on the on the team to move a little bit slower because we just have many more teams now. So actually as a whole business we can move much, much faster. And then of course uh, 
avoiding introduction of new technical debt um, or unnecessary complexity or things like that helps us keep our velocity high even as the team grows. When you started out, you know, building the MVP, was it more of a monolithic kind of uh, structure architecture? Yeah, for sure. It was. Uh, it was very, very much a monolith. We were extremely avoidant of introducing new technologies or, or really anything that would add extra overhead to, like, you know, having to learn anything new, having to maintain anything new, anything like that. Um, we stuck to the tools that we knew, even if maybe sometimes they weren't like the perfect one for the job, just because you know it was good enough for the time being. Since then, I would say that the we're now much better about sort of using the right tools for the right problems and thinking more critically about whether the decisions we're making now are, are going to help scale with the business and when we might need to to revisit a technology and replace it. I would still say that um, some of the core principles towards making technical decisions that we had in the early days do still apply today and it's it's things like you know not introducing a new tool or a new technology just because it's got hype around it or things like that if we have something that we already use that accomplishes what we need to do we seek to uh, use that whenever possible you know looking at one signal and you know where you are now and what you've come from, what are you most proud of technology-wise, team-wise, as a CEO? What are you most proud of in what you've built? It's definitely the team. The work that we're doing today is all from the amazing people that we've hired. Their sort of ability to go back and you know now clean up a lot of sort of that early technical debt and now to build all these incredible product features on top of it that I couldn't even have imagined um, ever building myself and would have never been able to build myself. That's something I'm really impressed with. Um, and also I've, I've built just a tremendous amount of um, appreciation for the different functions of the company outside of engineering as well. Obviously my, my technical background gives me a lot of admiration for the quality of the technology that we're building and the quality of the people we hired on, on our engineering and product teams. But also it's, it's really wonderful to see how well the other teams at the company uh, work together um, and the incredible people that we've hired across sales and, and other functions. And then the collaboration uh, between all the different folks. You know, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to see a lot of different startups at our stage. Um, and I think we've, we've really built a, a special team here. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made throughout this, you know, the life cycle of OneSignal and, and how did your team respond to it? One of the things that I've, I think has just been kind of a continuous learning experience for us is about how we sort of hire people at the company. I think every company is, is not perfect. Sometimes you hire people that aren't a fit and uh, it's just sort of the, uh, the nature of, of a growing business. Um, but I think I've definitely learned about the things that are, that are super important in our interview process to make sure that, that someone's going to be a good long-term fit for us. And I think the, the values part of the business is a big part of that. I think sometimes there's a temptation to hire someone that maybe doesn't agree with the vision of the company or doesn't agree with the values of the company. And you feel like it's it's sort of an okay compromise or necessary compromise because you just really, really want to hire someone for that role. But I've always found myself regretting it. So for one signal, tell me what the future looks like for the product and for your team. 
the last year has been really eventful um, and we're looking to sort of continue uh, uh, a lot of growth in 2020. Uh, the team right now is about 40 people. Uh, the product is uh, very, very popular with our customers and we want to keep on sort of investing into it. So we're looking to, to sort of double the team basically across all departments. So we'll, we'll go from about 20 engineers that we have today to about 40. The product is evolving pretty quickly. Uh, so some of the things that we're thinking about now are how to give our customers better analytics into the messages that they send and helping them use those analytics to, to improve the outcomes of their messages. We're also introducing support for other messaging channels. So we've been great at, at sending push notifications, but we also want to be really great at sending emails and SMS and other channels. Um, and that's a big product focus. We're starting to do a lot of partnerships as well. So we're looking at what are the companies that we want to build integrations with um, and how can we do more than a tactical integration, but also work with their sales team, help our customers uh, better understand how to use our two products together, uh, things like that. And then uh, continuing that over the next few years, there's just a tremendous opportunity in the market for OneSignal to help all businesses send more effective messages. And, and we're trying to do that as quickly as we can. Who influences you and how you work? Name an architect or CTO or CEO or, or person that you look up to and why? People that come to mind actually are, are the, the two founders of Stripe, Patrick and John Carlson. I've just been really impressive individuals. As I look at Stripe, I've just been really impressed with the quality of the product. And I know they've followed a, a similar journey to myself in that, you know, being sort of very technical founders to being, uh, you know, now leaders of this of this business. You know, the approach that Stripe takes in pretty much everything they do from their technology to their marketing to their hiring has been quite impressive. And also, I think one thing that they've really nailed is building um, an incredible company culture, even as the company has scaled now to, to thousands of people. Um, and I think that's that's tremendously challenging to sort of be able to, to do that, especially as the company scales as fast as they have. Um, and so I, I really admire them for building just that such an incredible business, being just very, very thoughtful um, and being on a, you know, a, a journey that I'm, I'm seeking to, to follow myself as best as I can. So if you could go back to the very beginning or around the early days, what would you do differently or what would you consider taking a different approach on? One of the things that I, I recognize uh, we could have done better on is um, just how quickly we, we moved in certain areas. For me, I think that the way that I sort of observed this, you know, in the early days, we were just a very, very small team, but the product was really taking off. And I spent a lot of my time just keeping the servers running or trying to learn new technology or trying to build things um, or answering support tickets. And, uh, you know, I think that I really enjoyed it and it was, it was um, I was very good at it, but I think the company would have been better off if I had made sure to, to take away some that's perhaps have been more willing to, to let there be a little bit of downtime or let some support tickets go unanswered um, and instead uh, sought to hire people to help take care of these problems and sort of scale the business a little bit faster. So I think it, it worked out, but there was an opportunity for us to, to move more quickly um, just by recognizing when I was doing things that, that maybe weren't super scalable and seeking to find ways to, to automate those things or to hire people in to take over them. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to 
a young individual that has just built the next big thing, right? And they're jazzed about it. They're pumped. They want to show it to you. Having gone down this road a couple of times now, what advice would you give that person? I would come back to it after a while. Um, you know, as an individual, you can build an incredible product, but to take that product from from just being, you know, something that that is small and kind of an upstart to, to building a building a really impactful, fast-growing business, it stops being about the the sort of individual contributions of yourself uh, on the product or the project, but it's about the the people that you hire in to start scaling it. Um, and so recognizing when it's the right time to go and hire those people and being able to bring really excellent ones to, to your team, um, I think is, is something that a lot of people wait too long on. Um, and it's kind of an underappreciated talent. Um, ultimately, I think that that's what drives a lot of the long-term success of a business. That's fantastic. Well, George, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of One Signal. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Season two episodes are co-produced and edited by Bradley Denham. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.